Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. I'll read it for us, and then we'll pray. Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. Let's pray. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have given people, given men and women, the ability to write, to transmit, to communicate the word of God, the words of God, that they have come now to us. And so we need the same help. We need the same help to see, to know, and to believe. Without your help, without the strength that you provide, without the clarity that you give our minds, without the softening of our heart, we will not see what we need to. And we will be apart from you. We will not experience your joy. We will not grow in the ways that we need to. And so we beg of you this morning, oh God, reach down to us. Unveil our eyes. And may we see you. May we know you. And may we believe you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So sometimes the tiniest changes in history lead to the greatest ones. The tiniest changes in history sometimes lead to the greatest changes. Discoveries, accidents, lead to sweeping historical turns that affect all of us even today. In 1872, there was a photographer. His name was Edward Moybridge. And he was attempting to settle a debate about horses. He wanted to know whether all four hooves of a horse left the ground during a gallop. He wanted to settle that debate. And so what did he do? He set up a series of cameras that would take photos in quick succession. This tiny move, this experiment, spurred the development, of course, of the motion picture. In 1928, a dish of bacteria was in the lab of Alexander Fleming, and it was accidentally contaminated with something called penicillin notatum mold. Ernest Borst Chain and then Howard Walter Florey, they took up the development of what had happened, that little accident, and developed into what we understand today is penicillin in the 1930s. They shared the Nobel Prize for their work in 1945. The number of lives that has been saved by this treatment, by this accident, is impossible to know. One of my favorite ones is something that happened in the early, very early 18th century. A very tiny change was made to the harpsichord. Maybe you've heard a harpsichord before before, used a lot in Baroque music. If you ever listened to Bach, he has a lot of harpsichord. Now, the harpsichord is interesting because the way that it works is these long strings are strung through it all the way down this big body, sometimes a smaller body. And the mechanism is a tiny hook that every time you play a note, it plucks a string. Now, it's a beautiful instrument. It was used widely, but it's a limited instrument. Because it can only play at one volume, it plucks it at the same volume every time. Well, someone in the early 18th century decided that maybe they shouldn't pluck the strings, but they should hammer the strings. 
This was a guy who worked on harpsichords and he had this idea and he tried it out. It was something that he called the keyboard instrument with soft and loud. And the piano was born. And music from classical to jazz to even pop music has never been the same. Sometimes the tiniest changes in history lead to the greatest one. Everyone knows the golden rule. You know, to treat others as you wish to be treated. We all know that. We grow up hearing it. But Jesus actually was not the first person to talk about it. He wasn't the first person to repeat it. He would have said it, and many of the disciples would have heard him, and they would have said, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. I've heard this before from my, from my rabbi, maybe from my mother. She's told me the same thing. But then as he passes it by, As he passes by what he says, he repeats the golden rule. I wonder if they would have turned their head just a little bit. Ever seen a dog do that when they're inquisitive? Humans do that too. Huh. He said it, but but it's different than the way I remember it. He says it he said it in a in a way that, that, that sounds like I understood it, like I understand it, but he's changed it a little bit. What is what is different? He had changed it. And it was tiny. Just a few words added here, some taken away, some altered just a little bit. But this tiny alteration changed the face of religion and the world. Jesus did not change the way we consume media, he didn't alter the landscape of medicine directly, he didn't even invent a musical instrument. No, but he changed our very understanding and relationship to love. And so that's what we are going to talk about this morning. So we need open ears, eyes, and hearts to see what he has to say. Three points this morning to walk us along. One, the plan is love. Two, the path is through the self. And three, the power is in Christ. Matthew 7, 12, again, listen, this is our first point. The, point, the plan is love. Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So see that first word there, so? So it could also be translated, therefore. And if you're a good student of the Bible, you know that when you ever see that word, you need to ask what it is there for. What's the therefore, therefore? Now you could say that it's, it's pointing back to the, first, or the, the previous few verses. But most scholars don't think that. Most scholars think that he is ending a section here. Matthew 7, 12 is the end of a a section. He's wrapping things up. It's a capstone because the next part, the next few verses are really a change. They're a a change in in tone and, and direction. Now, something is different about verse 12, but especially you, you can see this when he says at the very end there of verse 12. For this is the law and the prophets. Do you remember where he said this before? It's a long time ago in our series. Chapter 5. Just after he finished the Beatitudes. He was talking about the law and the prophets and how he had come to fulfill it. To fill it up, to finish it off. Not to change it or alter it, but to bring it to completion. Well, now he's saying it again. This is a capstone. This is an end. 
In other words, everything that I have said to you, everything that I have taught to you in this sermon, I am going to sum up for you in a single sentence. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's fascinating. Now, when we hear the word law, what do we think? We, we assume like it's our own laws today, right? We assume that Jesus is setting forth some, some boundaries, some restrictions. That's how laws work, and they're good. Laws keep us from doing wrong things. They restrict us from being evil or bad or wrong. Now, we have a tendency to, to backfill this. I don't think exactly literally, but I think that we have the tendency to look at this verse and we make it into a law. We hear it and we, we hear law. Well, these are the things that I must do to behave. This verse is teaching me how to with, withhold myself from doing wrong things. I won't do to others, in other words, what they have done to me. Whatever I do not like, I will not do to others. That's what we hear. That's good law. The law keeps us from doing bad things. And this is how the disciples, I think, would have heard it. Because like I said in the intro, they heard this before. Jesus was not the first person to mention a golden rule like this, a restriction. The renowned Jewish Rabbi Hillel said, What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. That is the whole law. Another saying at the time said this, And what you hate, do to no man. Do not harm each other. Whatever you don't like, don't do that to others. That is good law. That's what they would have heard, and then they would have turned their head, and they would say, wait a minute. Is that really what he's saying? Whatever you hate, don't do that to others. Listen to what Jesus says. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Can you hear the change? It's subtle. It's not difficult. But it is a monumental shift. Everyone else before this had understood and applied this rule negatively. Jesus states it positively. Not only should you not do what is wrong, you should actively, proactively do what is right. Not only should you refrain from hurting others the way you do not want to be hurt, you should go out of your way to do to others what you want done to you. That is the new law. And it changed everything. Because laws, listen, are generally good at restraining us from doing what is evil, right? We've already said that. But they are really bad at getting us to do what is good, aren't they? Laws can't make us kind or loving or sacrificial. They may be able to change our behavior, our external behavior, but they cannot change our hearts. Think about the rules that we give to our children. Do not hit, we say. And they don't hit sometimes. Why? So they will not be punished. Not necessarily because they're being loving or kind. You need to share with your sibling. And sometimes they do it. Why? Well, they fear our punishment. They fear repercussions. Not necessarily because they really want to see their brother or sister happy. Laws have the same effect on us. Yes, they can make us, they can keep us from doing wrong things, bad things. But can they 
promote in us the good? Can they promote in us love? Well, that is what this law is saying. This law does not merely strain. It is calling us with love and kindness and mercy to give it out to the world. Michael Green, a scholar, says this. Listen, you can legislate against people doing to others what they would not want done to themselves. You can legislate that. This is one of the ways that we make a fair society. But you can never legislate to bring about what Jesus is teaching. That generous attitude of going out of your way to encourage the depressed, to forgive those who have wronged you, and to help the disadvantaged, it requires positive action, often self-sacrificial action. A regular old law cannot do that. And so this must be different. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. He is changing the game. He means this verse to be vision. He means this to be the vision of the community of God straight from the heart of God. That is why this is here. This is a law that is not just arbitrarily chosen, but is from the Lord himself. It is reflective of his character and his goodness. And it is meant now for us to guide, encourage, and fuel our lives. For it is the plan of God that we would love one another. Here is the highest good, the greatest end, that we would love all people, that we would love the world in radical and happy ways. In other words, here is how we can be like Christ. Jesus just changed a few words, and yet it changed history and the world, and now we must allow it to change us. We may be, must be caught up in the ripples of this historical wave. The plan from God for us, listen closely, is love. Now, how do we get there? That's a bigger question. The path is through the self. The path is through yourself. Verse 12 again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now this is a very literal translation. The one we use the ESV, it's pretty much word for word. And so I think it gets it right when it brings out that word wish. Wish is really important. You could also translate it desire. In other words, whatever you wish for yourself from others, Whatever you desire for yourself from others, you must do for them. That is what love is. Whatever you wish for yourself, whatever you, however you want to be treated, therefore you must treat others. So my daughter this year, they, her class read through Harry Potter, the first Harry Potter book. And there's this wonderful scene in the movie, in, in the book, where Ron and Harry, they find this mirror. They find this mirror that's offset somewhere in their big castle-like school. And they find it, and it's covered up, and they pull off the, the big cover, and they un- unveil it, and it's, a, and it's a mirror. And they both take turns standing in front of it. But, of course, the mirror is magic, and it, and it shows them different things. Ron stands in front of it, and, and what's he see, what he sees is, all these people around him and they've lifted him on their shoulders and they're cheering for him and they're screaming his name. Yay, Ron, you're the best. 
Then Harry stands in front of it, and he sees something much different. Harry sees standing behind him his parents, his parents who had been killed. And he sees their faces, and they are beaming with pride and love and joy, and they have their hands on his shoulders. And he turns around, and of course they're not really there. At this point, the headmaster named Dumbledore, he comes in, he finds them, and, and they ask, him, ask them about this mirror. And he says, ah, this is the mirror of Erised. You don't need to even hear his explanation of what it is. All you need to understand is what that word spells backwards. Erised. I asked my daughter to do that a couple of weeks ago. She figured it out. Desire. You see your deepest desires in that mirror. Whatever you want to be, you see it. Okay, now say you take that mirror. Let's just shift this a little bit. And what you see is how you want to be treated. You hold a mirror that will reveal your heart and it reveals how you want to be treated by others, how you want to be considered. What would it show? That seems to be what Jesus is asking us to do here. He is asking us to consider ourselves, our own hearts, our own desires. And so we have to ask ourselves that question very deeply. What do we wish? What do we desire? How do we want to be treated? We cannot stay, in other words, at the surface here. We can't just stay at the the top level and think about this very shallowly. No, we must think deeply about it, go deep into our hearts and ask ourselves the question, how do we really want to be treated? More than anything, why? How do I want others to handle me? Now, as I was thinking through it, This week, I thought of it in a lot of different ways, but what was most helpful to me is to break it out into three different categories, kind of three different levels. I think that we generally wish for three things. There are more more than this, but this is kind of a, a beginning point. Three things. We long to be known, to be helped, and to be sacrificed for. Listen to that again. We long to be known, to be helped, and to be sacrificed for. Listen to that first one. We wish... We, people would know us. We long to be known. And what I mean is that people, they would see us. That they would acknowledge us. We want them to know who we really are, not some facade. We don't want to have to put on a show for people. We want them to know us as we are. They, we want them to know our names, our histories, our love. We don't want them to judge us for sure. We don't want to be unheard or misunderstood or passed over. We want people to come to us and to assume that there's more than meets the eye. There's an old saying that goes this way. Be kind to everyone for everyone is in a battle. We want people to know that about us. If we did something stupid that day, if we said something out of place. We're in our battles. We're fighting. We want people to know that. We are not perfect. We know that. We have sins, but would you at least know that about my heart? Maybe the most important thing, though, is that we be known and not abandoned. We are so afraid of people catching the real sight of us. We're so afraid that they will know who we are, what our sins are. And that they will run. 
We want people to know us and still love us. We desire to be known. I'm reading a book right now about healthy organizations. It's a business book. It's not a Christian book. But there are many Christian themes in it. And one of the most important things is that, that this book says is that you must work on understanding each other within a leadership team. You must learn about each other. In other words, you must know each other. And so the author of this book, he goes around, he's this guru, and he goes around and he works with teams and he has them do this very, very simple exercise. But he says it's very revolutionary in teams and businesses. It makes them healthy. And he asks them to do this. You go around the room of a small team and you share some things about yourself. First, you share where you grew up. And you share how many siblings you had and where you fell in that order. The last thing is you share what the most challenging thing was for you as a child. In your childhood, what was the hardest thing for you to deal with? Now you can imagine the answers. Not enough money. An expectation to succeed. A, a distant mom or dad. How would you answer that question? You can understand, though, and how this might revolutionize even a team of business leaders. We are shaped by our histories. We are often shaped, I think, by the hardest things in our lives. If that comes out in a business setting, where people really get to know you, listen, it is far easier to be gracious and patient and understanding to the person you know than the person that you don't. That is what we want from others. We want people to really, really know us. We also wish to be helped. We want to be helped. Let's take some thought. You've got to dig a little deep here. I don't mean that we want handouts. I mean that when we get into a a pickle and we fall into a bad situation, we want someone to help us. Now, this is, of course, true physically. If we're in distress physically, say we fall into a hole, we want someone, someone to come by and throw us a rope to, pull, to push down a ladder to us so that we can climb out. Well, if we're being honest with ourselves, then we must say we want to be helped in every area of our life. We want to go through our lives and know that people are there to help us, to help us get out of the situations we're in, the ones that we make for ourselves, the ones that we can't avoid. We want help to grow, to grow in character maturity, to help us out of a bad decision, to help us defeat a sin. If we have egg on our face, we want someone to tell us, if we're being honest with ourselves. I've actually told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because I love it. So I, I worked at a, a concert facility in Washington State when I was in high school. This beautiful outdoor concert facility. And one weekend, Sting came through with his whole band. It was like the late 90s. Sting came through. One of my friends, he's a manager of, one of the managers of the place. He was down by the stage and he was eating his lunch. He was just kind of by himself. And as he was sitting, Sting's guitar player, a guy named Dominic Miller, sat down in front of him at the same table with him, and they started chatting. Well, Dominic Miller, he's this really attractive, amazing guy, but he was eating this giant piece of corn on the cob, right? And at some point, of course, he gets a huge piece stuck to his face, and he doesn't know it. 
And so my friend is right there, and he has the opportunity to tell him, you've got a big piece of corn in your face, and what does my friend do? Nothing. He says nothing. And I like to think that Dominic went backstage, and their sting is probably doing yoga and tells him. Even if it hurts, we want people to tell us, you've got some corn on your face. We want people to be honest with us. We want people to tell us when we are going astray, when we're falling into sin. That's what we want, truly, honestly. But listen, it has to be kind. It has to be kind. We have to know that they are trying to help us for our sake, right? There's a big difference between when someone tells you something that you, they think you should know for them and when they are telling you for you. I was listening to a podcast recently. It was a, a church podcast. And it was, a guy was speaking about his pastor. He was an employee at the church. And he was speaking about the main pastor, the senior pastor. And he said that he had been called in by the senior pastor to his office and they had a long meeting. And he said he walked out feeling so amazing about himself, so encouraged, so excited about ministry and what he was going to do that day and the rest of the year. But then it occurred to him, he realized that the senior pastor had just finished rebuking him. He had just, for the last half an hour, been called to the carpet for some sin he didn't mention, but it was a sin, a failure in his life. And he said he walked away encouraged. And it was because this man, the senior pastor, loved this guy. And he wanted him to grow. And he knew it. He knew it just by the words that he spoke and how he did it. We want to be helped but not harmed. We want to be challenged, admonished, and even rebuked but not scolded, looked down on or dismissed. We want to know that someone is helping us for us. They are doing it for our sake and not their own. We want to be helped. Last, we want to be sacrificed for. Sounds kind of weird, but it's true. We want to be sacrificed for. We want someone to give up their own desires, their own wishes for us. When people are genuinely happy to serve us, when they go out of their way to assist us, when they sacrifice their time, their money, and their energy for us, something for which we could never ask them, and they give it to us, that is an astounding feeling. That is a wonderful thing. It is often these little sacrifices that change our lives. A small note of encouragement, a gift, a simple prayer. Someone that would walk alongside of us for our sake and help us to dream about the future at the cost of their own time and money. That they would be in it for our joy and do whatever they could to help us get there. That they would help us figure out our God-given gifts. That they would sit with us as we grieve. That they would bear our burdens with us as we pour out our sorrow. That they would forgive us that they would take on the pain of our sin and forgive our wrongs? Do you want to be sacrificed for? I know it's easy to brush this off. It's kind of embarrassing. And yet, deep down, 
we are always amazed and overjoyed when someone considers us like this. There are other things we could say. Those are big categories, though. We long to be known, to be helped, to be sacrificed for. But that's not actually the teaching. What is the teaching? You are to take all of that and more and do it for others. All the ways you wish to be treated, you are to treat others. Every way you hope to be known and helped and sacrificed for, do that for everyone. Again, for everyone, not just the people that it's easy to love. For all people, husbands and wives, bosses, dentists, teachers, gardeners, cashiers, friends, enemies. The path to love, then, is not just thinking about yourself, but letting go of yourself. Somehow you have to think about yourself, yet without self-interest. Somehow you need to transfer your needs to the needs of others. Whether or not you are ever treated this way, you are to give this out to everyone in your life. C.S. Lewis calls this self-forgetfulness. Tim Keller calls this gospel humility. Here's how James Montgomery Boyce, a pastor in Philadelphia, said it. A man can only do what Jesus says only if his mind is entirely off of himself and fixed at all moments on the needs, cares, loves, joys, hopes, and dreams of other people. That is the path. Are you ready to do it? There's no way. Not on your own. The plan is love. The path is through the self. And last, the power is in Christ. So whenever I go to to preach a text at the beginning of a week, I don't just try to figure out how I'm going to teach it. That's that's probably the easy route just to go, okay, how am I going to teach this on Sunday? No, I, I want it to impact me. I am a sinner of the foremost variety and I need the help of this passage. And I know that I will not be able to relay to you what you need unless I have allowed this passage, this teaching, to first affect, deal with, mess up my own heart. So I start to think about it. How can I be humbled by this? How does the scripture want to lead me to repentance? And then I wait. I wait for God to really give it to me, because it always happens. Somehow, some way, the Spirit will really challenge me at some point during the week. But I'll have to tell you, I have to tell you something. I do not know if I have ever been so humbled by a passage in my life. So I'm going to tell you something kind of personal. I got into an argument with my wife yesterday. Yes, even pastors and pastors' wives get into arguments. We're actually pros at it at this point in our lives. I'm not going to give you any details, but we were in the middle of this thing and there was anger and frustration and miscommunication like any good old fight has. And at this point, at this point I was reminded of this text. I'm preaching this tomorrow. And so I asked myself, how would I want to be treated in this situation if I were her? And how then can I extend that to her? And so I start thinking. And you know what I came up with? Nothing. 
nothing, zip, nada. I was in such a sin fog that I could not for two seconds get outside of myself, get objective, and be selfless. And I realized later that I had not just missed the law of love, I had reversed it. I was seeking to treat her as I thought she was mistreating me, even though she wasn't. That is such a painful reminder, and it was, of how screwed up I am. But listen, we are all screwed up. Our main issue is not that we just take this law as something to, with, with, to restrain us. Don't do anything bad. Our main problem is that we reverse it. Sinful people reverse it. Do unto others only as they have done to us. And we hold people at bay. We hold them hostage. And we, in the end, are miserable. To truly take this on, to truly become sacrificial, loving people, listen, friends, we must be humbled before this. We must be humbled before Matthew 7, 12. Here is the Father's heart in a sentence. We are not worthy. We are not capable. And so I hope that this, hope what happens for you is what happened to me. When I realized that I could not come up with anything on my own, I prayed. I sought help. I sought Christ. When I was literally incapable of applying this teaching to my heart and situation, I was capable of throwing myself on the mercy of God. God, I need your help. And at the time, God provided what I needed. The answer, boy, says, is that you cannot do it. But when God enters your life, of the moment of your conversion, new life is created by which the new you, fed and nourished by the Spirit of God, is made capable of attaining increasingly to all that God requires. This verse humbles us, and yet we are reminded that Christ is our power and our strength, and he is helping us to lead the lives that he has called us to lead. Paul says that the Spirit is filling us up, and how he's filling us up is by showing us Jesus Christ. More and more, he is growing our need for him, and friends, that is the place to be because Jesus Christ is the only person ever to have truly lived out the golden rule. If you think about his life, of course he had self-interest. Of course he did. He is the glorified ruler of the universe. And yet what the Bible says is that he divested himself of this glory when he came down to earth taking the form of a human. And then he lived his life in poverty, constantly under the threat of violence and death. And then he took it on. He took that violence and death on in the most humble place imaginable, hung upon the tree to serve us, to give us what we always have wished for, to make us into people who were humble and happy enough even to love our enemies. Just think through Jesus Christ in his life. Jesus knew us, didn't he? He knew us better than anyone else, better than we know ourselves. He knew every sin, every failure, and he did not reject us. He knew our heart's condition before we even knew him. He loved us. He saw our sin and he did not turn his face away 
from us. But listen, to do that, to give that to us, he had to lose the love of his own father. When he was on the cross, it was as if his father was saying to him, I never knew you. That is the God who loves you. And why did he do it? To help us. He died for us to help us. We were lost, dead in our trespasses, at war with him, dead apart from him, corrupted on the hook for our sins, destined for hell, and he paid it all. Isaiah 53 says that Christ was slain as our ransom. He paid for our sins. His divine blood paid to cover us. And he helped us while he himself was denied. He was denied. He was denied help for us, first by his own disciples in the garden. Can't you stay up with me for a few moments? And then on the cross by God himself, my God, my God. The cry of pain and anguish for help as he was denied for us. And of course, this led to his total sacrifice. He gave us not just 10% or 50% or 98% of his life. He gave it all for joy. For joy. He helped us. He served us. He sacrificed himself for us because it made him happy. Let us run with endurance to the race that is set before us, the author of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This verse is impossible on our own, yet it is the vision for our lives in this world and of the kingdom, and he wants it for us, and so he will provide the power that we need for it. And so I would say, friends, seek him. Be humbled by him. Rest in his grace for the sake of love. Let's pray. God, we offer ourselves before you yet again. We humble ourselves before you, the King of grace, the merciful God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This passage is a reminder to us that we are not perfect and far from it. And we are sinful that we are lost apart from you. But this verse is the great reminder. You do not speak this to anyone except those who may hear it and believe it and live into it. This is not meant to crush us, but to lift our heads. And so would you do that now? God, for those who are struggling with this, for those who are struggling to love their neighbors as themselves, for those who are struggling, struggling to love their own children, God, would you provide them the grace that they need? Lift their heads and their eyes. May they get new vision and be given great power. And God, I pray that for this church. We are not going to do this perfectly, but I do pray that people, as they walk in these doors, as they interact with us when we are on the street, that they would begin to see this just a little bit. That they would turn their heads just to the side and say, something is different about this person. Something is different about they are, the way they are leading their life. They are sacrificing for me. God, I pray that for us. And we need it by your mercy, by your strength.
Through faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone, we ask this. Amen.